Sidekick on the air. It is Thursday night, January 7th, year of our Lord, 2021. Still not in the studio in Nashville. Still got things going on back here at home, still in Georgia. That is where we are broadcasting from. Uh, the tentative, and I do mean tentative, written in light pencil plan, is to be back in the studio Sunday night. Okay? Everyone cross your fingers. We'll see if that comes to fruition. That'll be the night before the national championship game. So hopefully at some point in the next year or so, you'll actually see a moving, living picture of me instead of just hearing my voice. Now that could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing, but hopefully it will be some kind of thing Sunday night. So thank you for bearing with us and hanging in there with us. It's not like it's thrown things completely off the rails, but we've had to adjust on the fly. So tonight we got a jam-packed show, as as you would figure we would have the Thursday before a national championship game. Now what I thought, and I was talking to Director Colin, I thought that tonight we were just going to do wall-to-wall Ohio State-Alabama, and we are doing that. Tonight is our full national championship preview special, however... As many of you probably noticed, over the past week, we've been sort of hinting at more news coming about Tennessee and Jeremy Pruitt, and that did happen today. I don't know if you noticed. If you didn't, we will rehash that. So the very latest there, and now I think we can a little more freely speculate about what's going to happen moving forward and what needs to happen and whose legs have been cut out from under them, yada, yada. So thank you so much for uh, watching and listening. Please subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel where you're at right now if you're watching, and subscribe to the Late Kick podcast where you may be right now if you're listening. We've done really, really good traffic there. And don't think for a second that the content stops when the season stops. In fact, I'm probably a little more excited. I don't think I should say this out loud, but I already started the sentence, so who cares? I'm a little more excited about some of the content ideas we have for the offseason than I even am for the regular season. So uh, trust me, I well, I, at least I think I can tell you that you will really like what we have coming up in the offseason. Uh, it makes it a lot shorter. The offseason normally seems like about 14 months, so we try and condense it with really good stuff to pass the time. So uh, let's dive in on this. We are, as I, t- as I said, we're going to talk about Tennessee. We're going to talk about Ohio State, Bama, and that should fill our show tonight. So let's very unprofessionally, hold on, let me lick my finger, and let's flip the old notebook page. There we go. Okay. So there's trouble in Knoxville. I mean, there's definitive trouble in Tennessee. We've known it for a while, but today, Mark Schleybaugh, a story that I had heard was coming for uh, the better part of a week now with ESPN.com, released a piece about the hiring freeze. Now, if I were to just say those two words, it would set off totally different sets of alarm bells. Hiring freeze? Well, uh, let's pause, at least for a little while. That's not what's happening. What's happening is we have an actual hiring freeze at Tennessee. So here's what's happening, okay? You can read this piece over on ESPN.com. I think it's free. And so here are the nuts and bolts, and here's what's going on. We've talked about this already on the show. Right now, it's a mess at Tennessee. There's an internal investigation going on. The timeline has essentially been this. Pruitt comes into the season. He's cool. Then they start losing games. Then there's talk about him being on the hot seat. And then there's some people like me who push back and say, you're going to put a guy in the hot seat just because he lost in 2020? But be that as it may, the answer is yes, we are going to. But then if that wasn't going to be enough, then you also have internal investigations popping up for improprieties and recruiting violations, maybe, or internal violations, maybe. We'll see, because that will eventually come to the surface. And then you have an entire new set of problems. And that kind of gets us to about where we are right now. And where we are right now is nothing can happen there. And you got, on one hand, Jeremy Pruitt yelling at the top of his lungs, wait a second, You want me to win, and you're mad I'm not winning, but yet you won't let me hire new staff, and all my players are jumping into the transfer portal, and I can't lock up a recruiting class because every rival coaching staff is telling them about the uncertainty here, and I can't disagree because I'm uncertain. And then you got the chancellor up there essentially saying, not my problem, ma'am. I'm not going to allow you to hire new people until we know what's happening with you and whether you're going to be around. And therein lies the problem. 
So here is what's happening. What's happening is you are probably witnessing the end of Jeremy Pruitt's tenure at Tennessee, just to be blunt with you. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to be fired next week, but either directly or indirectly, at this point, I feel like this is probably the end for him. If it's direct, and there is coming a day very soon where he sits in a room, he being Jeremy Pruitt, with investigators and lawyers, and they lay out what they have found on him, and he has to refute or defend or deny or admit, like all that has to happen. Uh, either that's going to happen, and that right there is the end of him being at Tennessee, or they're going to be able to have Jeremy Pruitt survive, but a lot of other folks lose their job. But even then, his legs are cut out from under him because by that point, I mean, what do you have? You got Jeremy Pruitt with a gutted staff, a gutted roster. A lot of guys have gone into the portal. I would expect a few more, if, if what I'm hearing is true, to hop into the portal. And uh, a recruiting class that's not necessarily anything to write home about. I mean, you'll have all kinds of negative energy around there. I don't know that he would be able to enjoy any kind of strong institutional support, especially to the degree that Nick Saban or Kirby Smart have. And so what do you have going for you? So even if this does not immediately cost Jeremy Pruitt his job, I mean, it's probably irrelevant. And it's probably only a matter of time. So if he's given 2021, at this point, even the most optimistic of outlooks would have to conclude that it's going to be a do or die season for him. And you're going into a do or die season, maybe with one or both hands tied behind your back. And you have to compete against the best of the best in the toughest conference in America with no wiggle room. So that is probably where they are right now. Now, I was doing radio with Trey Wallace and the guys up in Knoxville yesterday. And, you know, we started to broach a different angle on this subject. And that is because I think it's fair to do this now. And that is if you start to entertain the idea that Pruitt won't be the head coach there in 2021. And I don't think that's unfair again at all. I would be 50-50 at best right now if I had to wager on that. So if it does come to fruition that Pruitt's out, what is that job? What's the Tennessee job? Because there is there are wildly differing opinions on this. And I think a lot of times uh, folks struggle to look past the here and now. Right now, Tennessee as a program is a mess, and they've got NCAA issues up there. You know, potentially, we'll see what is borne out um, eventually when those findings are made public. But, you know, there's no way to know. Even if you get rid of Pruitt, there's no way to know if those sanctions are still there. Are you trying to find a coach to take over a program that is being placed on probation or having scholarships taken away? We don't know how that's going to pan out. So you got to tack that on to already, uh, as I said, a a wide discrepancy in opinion on what the Tennessee job is. And the reason I'm saying that is because what we have to ask is, who can they get? If Pruitt's out, who can they get? And here's my concern. My concern is not enough people out there agree with me anymore. My opinion on this has always been, if we can assume for a second that there are no sanctions hanging over Tennessee. So let's just assume that. My opinion's always been Tennessee can be a premier job. The fact that it isn't is not an indication that it's proof that it can't be. I don't think causation and correlation match there. I think that the cause for Tennessee not being an elite job right now or performing at an elite level, let's say, has been poor hiring decisions. So if Tennessee were to have made the right hire post Lane Kiffin, for example, then I think they would have been fine. They didn't. And then after that, they didn't. And then after that, they didn't. And so... They, here's the pushback, though. The pushback is maybe they made those hires because they couldn't get anyone better. And that is a concern for me uh, because it doesn't matter what I think about the job. I'm not in the running for being hired. And so, you know, if if the actual coaching market doesn't dictate or view the value of that job being on par with what I think, then it doesn't really matter. 
Here is my issue. My issue is, I think at this point, Tennessee's probably going to need a bridge candidate. And that means this. Whoever ends up, and this is speculation, by the way, if, if Pruitt is indeed not the head coach there in 2021, whoever Tennessee ends up bringing in is probably not going to be the guy that they hopefully have in 2024. I don't think the candidate that they want to have themselves attached to in 2024 or beyond, the caliber of that candidate is going to be available right now. You're going to need someone to come in, steady things, show what can be done there, and then hopefully the marquee for the Tennessee coaching position looks a lot brighter in 2024 or 25. I'm just going to give it three or four years, whatever the case may be. Hopefully then the profile of your job is a whole lot better than it is right now. And maybe in the next round of hiring, you can attract top, top names. I don't think it's realistic that they can attract top names right now. Now there is one name out there and a lot of you obviously know where this is going, which is why I teased hiring freeze at the very beginning. Uh, it's funny that the entire headline from this piece by Mark Schleyball was about a hiring freeze because that is probably your best route. If you don't go the interim route and just swallow 2021 and say, hey, let's just let's put someone in place as a stopgap. We're not going to do anything in 2021 of note anyway. Let's get ourselves a nice head start on the next round of coaching searches. Let's do that. And then we'll reassess a year from now. Yeah, you could do that. But if you don't, and you are adamant on making the big hire right now, it's got to be Hugh Freeze. That's what it's got to be. I have found it very peculiar all the while that Freeze has been suspiciously quiet up at Liberty, and Art Bryles all the while resigned as a coach in Texas at the high school level. It's been widely speculated, both publicly and behind the scenes, speculated, both publicly and behind the scenes, that if Liberty ever came open again, Art Bryles would be the guy who takes that job. And he, what did he do? He he resigned as a high school coach, and now he's just floating out there. Now, if you were to put two and two and two and two and two together, it's a very complex math problem, but essentially what it feels like is a lot of folks behind the scenes already know what's coming, and in this purely hypothetical situation, that would mean Tennessee's eventually going to come open, Hugh Freeze knows he's got that job, and in turn, Liberty knows that they can hire Art Bryles. Uh, those would be the dominoes there. Uh, that could just, as I said, be wild speculation. Or it could be a pretty tactical use of context clues. So we'll see about that. But here's what I do know. I do know that much as I said about Tom Herman after the Oklahoma game, Tom Herman wasn't going to be fired the day after losing to Oklahoma. But yet I thought that Saturday in the Cotton Bowl put the final chapter on his career in motion in Austin. And as it turns out, that was accurate. I think that this news today, if it hadn't already, this news today about a hiring freeze being put in place, Jeremy Pruitt not being able to do anything he wants to do right now, amid all the uncertainty already, I think that began the writing of the final chapter for Pruitt in Knoxville. It's a shame because, I mean, like I love him as a coach, but I don't think any coach, uh, Jeremy Pruitt or someone much more seasoned than him, could be placed in this exact position right now and be expected to succeed, even if he is given 2021 to do so. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, <laughs> nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
On to much more cheerful topics here. Uh, the national championship game, obviously, is Monday night. And so with that, uh, Colin, let's get ready and let's cut this preview. Ohio State, Alabama, national championship game, Monday night, 8 o'clock Eastern time on ESPN. And you and I both know that means it kicks off well after 8. But, hey, what are we waiting on at this point? we got a college football season. we got one more game. Let's make the best of it. Bama is favored by 7.5. This is, make no mistake about it, the best possible matchup college football could have hoped for. There was someone out there, some fool out there, was claiming, I bet the folks at ESPN are mighty upset they don't get Bama Clemson again. Like, what? I know that Oregon just legalized pretty much everything. And even Oregon, even state officials in Oregon, would have a big problem with whatever the person who said that had to be smoking in order to make their mind believe an executive at ESPN would prefer Alabama Clemson Part 32 over Alabama, Ohio State. These are the two biggest brands in college football right now. What in the... So anyway, that was incorrect. This is the premier matchup in college football right now. And here's why. I can tell you confidently, because I live in the South, in the SEC blueprint, in the footprint, rather, of the SEC, there's only one non-SEC program that they view as their equal. It ain't Oklahoma. It's not Oregon. It's not anyone other than the Ohio State Buckeyes. That's the only, they may hate them, but they respect them because they look at the way Ohio State recruits. They look at how serious they take football there. They watched how limp, for lack of a better term, a lot of the rest of the Big Ten seemed about the prospect of playing football this year as Ohio State tried to beat everyone upside the head with a sledgehammer to make sure the season happened. And they said, you know what? That's kind of the way we'd do it. You know, at Georgia, Florida, at at Alabama, that's kind of the way we'd go about things. So that program up there in Columbus, they got a lot of SEC to them. They recruit right on par with or better than most of the SEC. They're right there with LSU and Alabama and Georgia. So that is the one reason why you got supreme respect and also a big time competitive rivalry with Ohio State versus anyone from the South. And number two, you're playing Alabama. It's not just anyone from the South. It's the premier brand in college football, and they are the standard. And that is who you measure yourself against. That's what every elite athlete and every elite program in the sport is working to do, is finally earn the opportunity to measure yourself against Alabama. So as we dive in a little bit here, there is a term I haven't used all season that we sometimes use to define Clemson, actually, in these kinds of settings, and that's ascension mode. All right, so later on, Colin is going to show you our game capsule for this matchup, and that shows just the Vegas number versus what our in-house model has determined per 1,000 simulations of this game as its projected margin of victory for the favorite or underdog or whatever. Um, There is one great big wrench that can always be thrown into that formula, and that is if a team is in ascension mode. So what our model essentially needs is it needs to have a cap. It needs to have a basement and a ceiling on a team. And if it doesn't have the ceiling, it has no earthly idea how to define that team. And the ceiling, of course, means what is the maximum potential of a team? We know the minimum and maximum potential of a team, and that way we can sort of work out what we should expect from you. Your A performance, B performance, C performance, in tiers, if we have a ceiling and a basement on you, we should be able to define that. Well, here's the problem. Ohio State didn't play a full season, obviously. That in and of itself is not a huge problem, because even if you only play six or seven games, as long as we have a defined ceiling and basement on you, we're cool. But when you are one product through the regular season, and then all of a sudden you vastly exceed even your best performances in the middle of the season against Clemson, the most recent team you played, I mean, they outperformed against Clemson what they did against Rutgers. That's a big problem. 
Because what it screams is either one of two things just happened. Either that was a great, just made-in-heaven matchup for Ohio State, or it's a team that's in ascension mode. And if they're in ascension mode, it's like a plane climbing very quickly once it takes off. We have no clue what cruising altitude is for this team. We have no clue what they're capable of. And if that's the case, that is one of the paths that could see Ohio State pull off a surprising double-digit win here, like they did against Clemson as a seven-plus point underdog. I think it's kind of interesting as I've listened to some folks talk about this, including some of my buddies back home who are Alabama fans, uh, they got kind of worried because they only, and I want to stress this, only scored 31 against Notre Dame. I don't think it's reason to worry at all. If you've watched them, uh, them being Alabama, if you've watched them in the past, there's a little bit different way Nick Saban has gone about playoff games versus regular season games. You know, because margin of victory is totally and completely irrelevant once you get to the playoffs. And really, if you play in the SEC, if you're Alabama, style doesn't matter anyway, because if you win, you're going to get in. But just to play it safe, you know, a lot of times you want to maximize and stretch margin as far as you can in a regular season game. When Nick Saban has gotten into a championship or a playoff situation, that is not the case. Once they realize they've got a team that can't trade points with them, that can't keep up, they will throttle, and I don't mean throttle as in beat to death, I mean throttle the game as much as possible to get it over with as quickly as possible. They ran 55 total plays last game and scored 31 points. They had, I I can't remember what it was, but the ratio of first downs to total plays run, um, if you're looking at that game, it's what I'm saying, and you think, ooh, they were off. They were really off against Notre Dame. No, they weren't at all. That was a classic Nick Saban versus inferior team in playoff performance. They did it against Washington a few years ago. Uh, They scored 24 points, I think it was, and everyone said, "Uh uh-oh. Well, really, not so much. Uh, So I wouldn't worry about that whatsoever. As for Ohio State, so we're just going to jump around back and forth. I like to do these previews as kind of just a stream of thought. You know, there's not necessarily five bullet points. Here's what to watch for. Here's my favorite matchup. We're just going to kind of blend all that together. So Justin Fields, what do we think here? Ohio State fans, what do we think? I know that we've had some conjecture as to whether he's 100% or not. Um, Listen, if he's 90%, I'd take a 90% Justin Fields over pretty much, well, almost anyone else who plays the position in this sport. My question, and no one's question really, is will he be able to play? That's not the question. The question is, how much of him do we get? How close to 100% is he able to operate? And I'm hesitant to buy into 100% only because here's what 100% would mean. If I get 100% of Justin Fields, that means there is no hesitance in calling design quarterback runs. There's no hesitancy in Justin Fields to uh, create contact on a third and short or in open field. There is zero trepidation in using his mobility. Now, that can be viewed two ways. Number one, it can be viewed in terms of play calling, and somewhat I do view it that way, but I'm not really talking about play calling. I'm talking about instinct, because when you're injured, instinct sometimes takes over. And the reason why that's, reason why it doesn't really sound significant, but it will be significant, is because if you get into a true point trading, back and forth type of you know track meet sort of game, which this does have the potential to do, the ability to fall forward on a critical third or fourth down one series could end up making the difference. I mean, when you're having to maximize every single series and you end up giving one away because your quarterback uh, physically ended up not being capable of finishing a play, just physically uh, didn't end up being able to fall forward for those extra yards, that could be the difference in a game. So that's one thing I'm looking for. The second thing, speaking of injury over on the Alabama side, I think Jalen Waddle's going to be back here. So I guess the the 
requisite follow-up is, what are we going to get from Jalen Waddle? Because I know that there's this uh, talking point out there that, well, if he's in the game, he'll probably be a decoy. I'm not so sure about that. I don't expect Jalen Waddle to catch 15 balls. Let me say that. But I also don't think that uh, if Alabama is going through the motions of getting him ready to play, if Jalen Waddle's on the field, Jalen Waddle's going to be able to contribute. And if he does that, boy, that adds a layer. I know you look at Alabama's offensive production and you think, well, they can't get any better. No, it's not that. I think with Jalen Waddle on the field, it lessens the um, the risk of a three and out in any given situation. It just adds a different level, a different layer offensively. And when you're looking at potentially defending the middle of the field, let's say, especially when you have to also account for a back out of the backfield and the vertical threat of Devontae Smith. I mean, when you add the ability for 4-4 four, four speed drag routes across the middle all afternoon or all evening, that's a different element. I mean, that's just, it makes it so hard to get off the field harder than it already is, which I guess kind of brings me to this point since I'm thinking about it. Ohio State's wide receivers. So let's switch sides of the ball here. Ohio State's wide receivers against Alabama's defensive backs. Probably my second most looked forward to matchup of this game. I'll talk about the other one in a second. But uh, the ability for Olave and Wilson against guys like Josh Job and guys like Pat Sertan, even guys like Malachi Moore, if he's able to go and play 100% in this game. Brian Branch has had a really good year for Alabama. I really look forward to that because I thought the matchup, even going into the Clemson game, even though I ended up picking the Tigers to win, I thought the matchup, wide receivers for Buckeyes versus secondary for for Clemson, I thought it heavily favored Ohio State. I just didn't think that it ultimately would be the deciding factor, but dude, they, they ripped Clemson. Uh, they won't do that to Alabama. They will have success. Please don't misunderstand me. Ohio State's going to score a lot against Alabama. Uh, I hope Crimson Tide fans are used to that at this point because in these big games, it's that's, that's college. That's not even an Alabama thing. That's college football these days. But the um, the difference here and the reason it is one of my favorite matchups and most looked forward to aspects of this game is because, again, if you view this within the context of what Ohio State may have to do, and if Alabama starts scoring consistently like they have all year, what you may have to do is you may have to answer and answer and answer all afternoon. You you may not be able to have more than one or two series end in something other than at least a three, if not a seven. The reason why I keep focusing on Sertan, Job, Malachi Moore is because it's the best secondary Ohio State will have faced so far. Now that in and of itself doesn't mean anything until you view it like this. That just means the windows tighten up. Doesn't mean you can't make plays against them, but it means the windows tighten up. It means the physicality at the line of scrimmage and getting off the line of scrimmage changes a little bit. And it makes the windows tighter, and it's a team as good as they've been all year. There has been the propensity occasionally for Justin Fields and Ohio State to struggle turning the ball over. Now, that again, just because you've done it before doesn't mean it's going to rear its ugly head at all here. Ohio State may be plus three turnovers, for all I know. Any given game, it's random. But the risk is there. Just the percentage chance goes up, the better the secondary is that you face. And so if Justin Fields can navigate around that, well, obviously that goes a long, long way in Ohio State pulling this upset off. There's another word that I was talking to one of the coaches that has faced one of these teams. That's as specific as I'd like to get for no particular reason. Uh, One of those coaches the other night kept on texting me the same word, multiplicity, multiplicity. Uh, He didn't say it twice. I just did right now. Sometimes I do that. Multiplicity essentially meaning this. Alabama's offensive talent is obviously better than will anyone has faced all years. The best offense in the country. They're more multiple, though. Uh, And what that means is 
it take you don't really figure them out. Uh, there's not there's not something they're doing that's very basic. Like sometimes you know when Malzahn was at Auburn, defensive coordinators around the SEC would tell you, dude, we can tell you what plays come in before they even snap the ball. It's not hard to figure out. Well, that's not Alabama's offense. They got all kinds of different shifts, all kinds of different pre-snap stuff, all kinds of different formations, all kinds of different personnel packages. Their personnel themselves are very multiple. I mean, for instance, Jaleel Billingsley is a tight end, at least on his depth chart, and he's a guy you could easily flex out and go from a power set to five wide spread and not even have to substitute. Najee Harris can pound it between the tackles and be one of your better receiving threats, and you don't ever have to substitute. And so because of being that multiple, it takes away your ability as an Ohio State defender or defensive coordinator, rather, to sub as regularly as you would want to. And so that's what Alabama does. It's really dangerous to you offensively. They got all the skill. They got Heisman finalists all over the place. But it's the multiplicity that really bites you sometimes. And then defensively, I think it's the same way. Now, Alabama, again, is going to give up points here. That's not it, okay? If you could tell me we're going to start this game guaranteeing you that Ohio State's going to score a minimum of 30 points, I would probably say, yeah, duh. Yeah, they probably will. It's not that, okay? It's not about all this. This is the way that Nick Saban's had to adjust his mentality there. It's not about shutting anyone down. If you can, that's great, but it's totally unrealistic to expect. Instead, what you're trying to be is opportunistic, and you got the skill and you got the multiplicity to where you keep showing guys looks, you keep showing guys looks, your defensive backs keep fighting, and maybe they're losing some of those battles, but they keep fighting. Eventually what happens is you're given enough different looks that a passing lane that was open the prior series is all of a sudden clogged here. You get a tip ball up in the air, you get one or two turnovers, balls on the ground, and it's the difference in the game. It, it happens just like that. You're not looking at the same look all game like you are maybe against some college defenses. So the stress... On the Buckeye offense comes, I don't think, in necessarily the amount of talent that you're facing or the fact that Alabama's got the best secondary you will have faced. It's not that as much as it's needing to answer all night, unlike you've had to do all season, and you're having to do it against, let's say, the best secondary that you faced all year. So that's what I would look at if I'm Ohio State. But then again, if I'm if I'm an Alabama fan and I'm looking around saying, we're favored by seven and a half, but then again... So it was Clemson, and Ohio State blew them out. So how would that happen to us? Are we in danger of that happening? Uh, well, a blowout would surprise me. Uh, a loss, an Alabama loss wouldn't surprise me. If it were to happen, I think the biggest keys for Ohio State to pull that upset would be, number one, you need to move Mac Jones. You need to make sure that, you know, unlike Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields, who have no problem moving in the pocket and redefining the launch point, that's not Mac Jones's game. Uh, he can do it, but it, he's certainly not as fleet of foot, and it's certainly not as comfortable for him. Uh, he is a precision assassin-type quarterback against the blitz, but he does it pretty much staying in the pocket where it's been defined on the snap. And if you can cause that to change, it's a lot easier said than done, but maybe not impossible. But if you can cause that to change, you've gone a long way in potentially interrupting their offensive rhythm. Now, the reason I said it's not impossible, even though very few teams have managed to do it all year consistently— uh, none have, actually. The way that you could do it is Ohio State will have probably the best opportunity, and in, in situationally, the opportunity of any team in America this year, of being able to interrupt Alabama's offensive timing and rhythm from the interior. Because of the loss of Landon Dickerson at center, combined with the great interior guys on Ohio State's defensive line, they've got an opportunity to do something that other teams haven't had the opportunity or personnel to do, and that is collapse the pocket or affect the pocket from the inside. 
You occasionally face good edge rushers, but all Alabama does is run the ball right at them. Okay, that's how they solve that. They don't even give them the ability to rush the passer. Well, this is a little bit different animal. And so all of a sudden, if you start seeing Chris Owens in the interior of that Alabama offensive line not hold up early in this game, it changes everything. Because everything you know about Alabama's offensive attack is predicated on protection. And if they don't have it, well, then all of a sudden, you know, you go into the half and Alabama's got 16 points on the board instead of 30. And you're saying, what's happening here? Well, what's happening is Ohio State's defensive line is controlling the game. The third thing they need to do, because collapsing and moving Mac Jones kind of goes hand in hand. The third thing is they cannot abandon the run. Even if Alabama starts to rack up points, you can't abandon the run because it is your best hope in this game. You you have got to do you and do what gives you the best chance to win. And matchup wise, you know, it's kind of the inverse of what Alabama used to fear. I think Alabama used to fear the big time passers. And now they're so used to it. You know, Kyle Trask put some yards on him. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, they played him. He put some yards on him. Uh, Justin Fields will put some yards on him. But what they don't have that they used to have is kind of a rock-ribbed front seven, and they prided themselves on folks not running on them. Well, you can run on them now. I mean, they've had to change their personnel. They don't have an elite defensive line. they got some good edge rushers. They do not have elite run stuffers. They don't. And so um, this is a game that is ripe to have the complexion of it changed with Ohio State being able to run the ball. An uncomfortable, an uncomfortably successful amount of running the ball. So, you know, even if you get down 14-3 early, it's a long game, man. It is a long game. Now, you're down 28-3, to that's a little bit different. But 14-3, you know, 17-7, to you keep running the ball. And over the course of four quarters, uh, that should work to your benefit. All right, Colin, let's show them the game capsule here. Uh, this is the Vegas line, being Bama minus seven and a half. Our late kick model, again, we simulate the game a thousand times. This is the average final score. We agree with the Vegas number. So we've got Alabama minus seven, just a hair under the seven and a half, obviously. I um, I have pretty mixed feelings on this game. It is extremely hard to look at what Ohio State's done in the last four quarters of football and say, yeah, let's go ahead and install them as a seven and a half point dog. Uh, but then again, if I look at the entire season and I look at what these teams have been, this number is right, which draws us back around to the great paradox in this game. And that is, is Ohio State a team in ascension mode? If they're in ascension mode, this certainly is too fat a number. I mean, if they're in ascension mode, there is no number. It's just to pick them. Now, that's what this game should be. I am going to ever so slightly lean towards the fact that Alabama is still the better team here. And it's why I'm going to take Alabama to win the game. I am not laying seven and a half points against either of these teams. And so if I am forced to bet this game, which I'm not going to do, but if I'm forced to bet this game, I would take the Buckeyes plus the seven and a half. Uh, by far, the most important element here is the pick straight up. And I am taking Alabama to win the game Monday night and to be crowned national champions in a sport that both of these programs, don't ever forget it, fought very hard to even make happen. So it's only fitting that two of the most vocal programs to start the year about playing period are indeed playing in Miami Monday night for a national championship. Let me know what you guys think in the comments below. I always look forward to intelligent conversation there. But remember... If you're going to predict the winner, 
Do it now. Don't wait until after the game. My little sister can do that. Give me your predictions before the game. And then if you disagree with me and you happen to be right, I'll be happy to eat crow all day long. But uh, I appreciate you guys checking out these previews all season. Subscribe to the channel. Uh, the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel is certainly not slowing down once the season's over. So I appreciate you guys uh, checking out the show, even though it's been kind of different in the last week or so. Hopefully we're about to return back to normal. But it's been a very fun time, so I'm uh, looking forward to this game, and I'm looking forward to talking to you guys about it. Until next show, which will be Sunday night, for Director Colin, for Producer Jordan on the podcast side of things, I'm Josh Pate. Enjoyed it tonight. Have a great start to your weekend, and God bless.